So here's a question that comes up a lot. I'm not a programmer. Can I be a product manager? Right? Episode number 65, two episodes ago, was all about imposter syndrome. That feeling that you aren't qualified, that you don't really know your job, that all your successes are due to luck. And having doubts about your technical qualifications as a product manager can definitely be a source of imposter syndrome. And so this episode's a follow-up to episode number 302, where I talked about some technical terms that non-technical product managers should understand. At least I think they should. In this episode, I'm going to talk about more technical concepts that will help you make better informed decisions in some situations related to technology. You know, most product managers, most experienced product managers would say, no, you don't have to be super technical to be a product manager, although it does help. You know, you don't have to read or write code as a product manager. I hardly ever have done that recently, certainly in the last few years. And But you ask, well, why do companies always say, you know, a computer science or electrical engineering degree is required? And really the reason is because it does give you some basis for having knowing how to talk to technical people and things like that. It also means you are somewhat numerate. In other words, you're, you might be good with numbers. And that's a valuable thing for product managers. So hi, this is Nels Davis. You're listening to All the Responsibility, None of the Authority, the podcast for product managers and product marketers, where I give you tools and techniques and mental models for being more effective, creating better products that hopefully your customers love, and using your skills and talent to create more value in the world, whether or not you once were a product developer or an engineer. This is episode number 67. You can find the notes for this show, plus a form for leaving me feedback on the show or asking questions or otherwise getting in touch with me at alltheresponsibility.com slash 67. If you happen to be a non-technical product manager or maybe even a technical product manager and you're currently looking for a new job or your first product management job even, you might want to check out my live online masterclass on how to tell the stories of your own accomplishments more effectively. It's a great interviewing skill. It's actually a great fundamental product management skill to be able to tell good stories. You can learn more about that at alltheresponsibility.com slash masterclass and you can sign up for the next masterclass there's one coming up right away as i record this and they will continue to happen over time because i love to share this knowledge it's a free class i recommend you sign up check it out learn all about the fundamentals of storytelling in particular around your own stories for job interviews so you know the reality is for most of us our products are technical and so there's a certainly an aspect where Product managers need to have good instincts about technical questions. And one way to get those instincts is to be somewhat technical or to be very technical. It's not that you can't be a product manager and be a pro having been a programmer, but the point is you probably don't have to have been a programmer to be a good product manager, but you do have to be somewhat technical. There are some downsides to having a technical background if you're a product manager. It's easy to get stuck in the technical weeds if you know a lot of technology, particularly if you know the technology that's actually being used in your product. Um, it's often easy to get stuck in sort of solution space and thinking about how you would build the solution and, and giving the developers your ideas about how the system should be built and things like that. You know, too much technical knowledge, at least if you're always trying to use it, can be a handicap as a product manager. You know, the other side of it is also that if you are pretty technical, you are likely to think that all problems can and should be solved with technology. And this is a trap. Oftentimes, the solution to a, 
problem you might have in the business is not more technology. It might be better copywriting on your marketing site or something like that. Explaining what the product does better, helping the salespeople sell the part product better. There's all these different things that if you try to solve every problem with technology, you won't know that you need to do, and you might not have the intuition to help the sales team, for example, become better at selling using words that describe your product as opposed to trying to put new features into your product. You know, if you think about what makes a good product manager, there's a set of characteristics and some skills, and definitely technical credibility is one of those. But the other ones are equally important, if not more important, things like empathy, things like the ability to see the big picture of a situation, as well as having attention paying attention to the detail components of a feature or something like that. The ability to have strong opinions loosely or gently or weakly held, meaning you you have a strong opinion about how something should be done or could be done or what's important, but if you get evidence that suggests you're wrong, you're willing to let go of your opinions or change them. Product managers need to have mental flexibility, and I don't just mean what I just said about strong opinions weekly held, but the flexibility to change context all the time. You know, a lot of developers, their day-to-day work is working on the same feature for a week at a time or a couple weeks at a time, or at least a day or two at a time. My experience as a product manager, and I think this is true for most product managers, is we deal with 15 different things a day and probably 50 things over the course of a week, meaning we have to constantly be switching our contexts and you have to be decently good at that to be effective as a product manager because you can't not do it. Well, in terms of skills, obviously, technical credibility is an important skill for us. But more important, probably, is communication because we have to be the locus of communication for everyone in the company related to the product, right? The business people, customers, salespeople, developers, of course, and so on and so forth. We have to be able to effectively communicate across those, all those different groups And that means that communication is one of our biggest skills, along with things like persuasion and storytelling and things like that that I've talked about in other episodes. We have to be numerate. We have to have a good sense of how the numbers work. Not that we necessarily have good numbers for a lot of the things we work on, right? But we have to be able to think in terms of, well, which of these potential features that I'm going to build has the likelihood of giving us the best ROI, right? That's a numerate idea, even if you don't necessarily have exact numbers and you have to make estimates and you have to think about probabilities and you have to think about likelihoods. But you need to think of those and combine them in a sort of a a numerate way, meaning you're going to be doing a little math in your head, at least, on a lot of prioritization decisions and things like that. And then, of course, there's technical credibility. So... What does this mean for if you're not a programmer, how are you going to work with your tech teams? Well, one of the most important things to do is to focus your work on problem space, meaning finding and validating problems that your customers have that the market has that can be solved, and then working with the developers to come up with solutions. Their job is to come up with solutions to the problems that you give them that you, that you assert are important for them to solve. And so your job more, more or less is to stay out of solution space, at least in the, in the sense of helping to define what the solution is, right? Really the whole 
point or the way that I think about the way that division of labor is in a product team is that the product manager is focused primarily on the problem and on the customer's transformation once they get a good solution to that problem. And the development team is really focused on how to best solve that problem using technology, using your technology in particular. So those are really two important things to think about. Stay in problem space, and you don't really belong that much in solution space, even, and even if you do have technical background and technical skills, that still is no longer your job if you're the product manager. So let's talk about some tech concepts that will help you succeed. Well, I mentioned three concepts in episode number 302, which is was about a year ago. I talked in that episode about the repository, about the framework or development stack or tool stack, um, and I talked about metadata, three real important concepts. In this episode, I'm going to talk about APIs. What are APIs and what do you need to know about them if you're a product manager who's not technical? I'm going to talk about order of magnitude and kind of big O notation and the performance of algorithms. And I'm going to talk about optimization because this is something that I think product managers struggle a lot with, optimization, because as I'll mention later, the tech guys love to optimize, but optimization is not always the right thing for them to be doing. And you have to understand enough about the implications of optimization and how to decide what needs to be optimized to be able to manage that a little bit. And in future episodes, maybe I'll talk about things like databases or architecture or heuristics or how to focus on creating a thin thread through your application, thinking about corner cases and stubbing, thinking about elegance of solutions versus expedience of solutions, things like that. If you have particular technical concepts you'd love to hear me talk about or that you'd just like to hear me talk about, or explain or give my perspective on, let me know. Drop me a line in the comments, or you can just drop me an email, whatever you want to do, because I would love to get your insights into what tech concepts you think are maybe the most challenging for non-technical product managers. I'll tell you how I came up with the list that I'm sharing here. Well, some of them are concepts that actually baffled me for a while, like the concept of the repository. I learned that very early on. But when I first heard it, I didn't understand it. And I had somebody had to explain to me what the repository was. Some reflect useful mental models that have helped me to understand technology and also to communicate with developers. And again, some of them are really focused on my ability to communicate better with developers and to understand what they're doing and also to sometimes understand how they might be going down a path that I want to guide them away from. So let's dive right in with APIs, or application programming interfaces. So this is about how data flows from one part of the product to another. That's a way to think about it. Let me give you an example. The key, One of the key benefits of an API is that the underlying implementation of your product or your feature can change, but the API for accessing the feature remains the same. Here's an example. Think about you have a car and you have a, four, a car with a four-cylinder engine, you'd like to put a more powerful engine in your car. So you put an eight-cylinder engine in your car. The hot rodders do this all the time. It's a different engine. It's a different number of cylinders. It's more horsepower. But your interface to the car, steering wheel, pedals, gear shift, things like that, remains the same, even though the thing in under the hood has totally changed. The, the steering wheel 
and the pedals are your API to making the car go. And that's just a simple metaphor for how for what an API is, right? Most products, most high-tech products today are built in a componentized way where the different components communicate with each other through APIs, meaning that the component, again, the underlying implementation within the component can change if necessary, but the, but the components that communicate with it don't care because they're always communicating with this well-defined API. Typically, APIs don't change. Once an API is there, the basic rule is you can't change it. You can add to it. You can augment it. But you can't remove things that were in the API that are being used by other components or outside components or outside developers or things like that. So the API essentially defines how data is retrieved and sometimes set into a component. And it's independent from how the data is actually stored or manipulated within the system. So here's another story about APIs that I think is really meaningful, right? You've heard of Amazon Web Services, which grew out of an initiative at Amazon where all the components of Amazon's many systems were reworked over time to become based on a service architecture. And what that meant in practice was that every component exposed a well-defined API to the world, meaning for most of them, just the rest of the Amazon components. And so the individual components could change their internal behavior. They could change their algorithms, even programming languages, but their interfaces remained consistent. And this changed, this changed Amazon because it enabled them to then open up some of those APIs to the outside world and create Amazon Web Services. Now, this is an oversimplification of what really happened, but that's it's sort of in a nutshell sort of how Amazon Web Services became what it became Amazon Web Services. It was Amazon's own internal systems, and then they opened up some of those APIs into their computing hardware, obviously not into their internal systems, but they essentially used those services that they built to create systems that people could use that were, who were outsiders and enabled Amazon Web Services, which is, of course, a huge product on its own in its own right now. APIs are usually are often how, well, almost always how outside developers get access to your internal data as well. The APIs that outsiders can access to your application are typically some kind of a limited set um, that you don't, they don't get access to all of what goes on, but a certain set of limited things that are the appropriate things for an outside uh, application to have access to. So what do you need to know about APIs if you're a non-technical product manager? Well, for one thing, it's always useful to know if there is actually an API for the data that you want to get at. You know, in the previous episode, episode 302, I talked about the repository. And I mentioned that if you want to show the user's phone number somewhere in the user interface, then the user's phone number has to be in the repository somewhere. But you also need to be able to retrieve that phone number. And ideally, there's going to be an API for retrieving it. You know, with an API, your application, your user interface doesn't actually have to know how the data is stored or where it's stored in order to retrieve it. It just calls the API, and the API hides the implementation. So the other point is it's not your job to build APIs or anything like that, but it's good to know that it's considered normal and best practice for most applications nowadays to be built in components with all the different components communicating via APIs because it makes everything work a lot more smoothly. It's often not quite as efficient as just building things that talk directly sort of to the underlying code, but 
not as efficient in terms of perhaps the code's own performance, but it's usually more efficient in terms of building and adding on and extending and improving things. It makes things more efficient if the components really can be kind of independent and only communicate via APIs. So that's the, that's the story on APIs. Let's not talk about this concept of big O notation and, and sort of order of magnitude and performance of algorithms. Big O notation is really about, it's, a, it's sort of a way of talking about the performance of algorithms. So here's a good example. Think about sorting a set of items, like maybe alphabetizing a list of words. Well, it turns out there's a bunch of different ways to sort things in the computer. Each of these different ways is called an algorithm. Some of them are faster than others, and the difference can be extremely significant, how fast they are. And you can make a mathematical statement about how fast a particular algorithm is, and you can often make a mathematical statement about the theoretical fastest algorithm for that process. And then these mathematical statements are typically expressed in what's called big O notation, where O is usually read as on the order of. So a fairly fast sort algorithm is on the order of n log n comparison operations. Comparisons are the expensive part of a sort. So what does n log n mean? It means that as the number of items to be sorted, which is called n, as that number gets large, the number of comparisons required is proportional to the number of items times the logarithm of the number of items. What does that mean? Well, you don't need to know what logarithms are. It's just useful to know that the logarithm of n is, almost, is always less than n. In fact, it's usually a lot less than n. So for example, the logarithm of 100 is 2. So if you think, if I need to sort 100 items, then the number of comparisons is going to roughly be 200, because that's n times log n. Whereas an inefficient sort, the easiest to code in some ways, is on the order of n squared, so n times n. So if you're sorting 100 items using an, a slow sort algorithm, the number of comparisons is going to be proportional to 10,000. So you can see that sorting 100 items with a slow sort is going to take 10,000 comparisons. Sorting 100 items with a fast sort is going to take roughly 200 comparisons. Well, that's a very significant difference. And obviously, that difference gets even bigger as n gets bigger itself. If it's 1,000 items, it's way a way bigger difference. And so the point is, what you need to know in terms of big O notation, you don't even have to know that there's a thing called big O notation, but what is the most important thing to know is that algorithms have characteristic scalability. So different sorts are going to be different speeds. And you don't need to know the order of any particular algorithm. It's totally not your job. But for example, if you happen to notice that the developers have created some code that does n squared operations, it's often the case that they could use a different algorithm for better scalability if it's important to do so. And this idea of if it's important to do so actually leads us into the next topic, which is optimization itself. Optimization meaning making the thing perform better, making it faster. And engineers love to optimize their code. They love to go in and make things better. They love to tweak and tinker. But the most important thing I ever learned about optimization, I learned this from Robert Noble at IntelliCorp in roughly 1994, for significant performance improvements, optimization won't work. You have to change the algorithm. And what this means is that if you've chosen a bad algorithm, it doesn't matter how much you tune that algorithm, it's not going to get significantly faster. You can get percentage improvements on, on optimizing algorithms. If you really need to improve the performance, 
you probably need to replace the algorithm. You need to use a better algorithm. Like the case of the sort, the slow sort, the n squared sort versus the n log n sort. So the most important optimization questions, though, for product managers are not even that. It's very useful to know that algorithms are more powerful than optimization in the first place. But in either case, optimization or performance improvements is always costly. So you don't want to have you don't want to do it if you don't have to. And you don't want the team to do it. You don't want the team to spend time doing it if they don't have to. So the first question you always need to ask is should we optimize or should we just leave it the way it is? Is it important for this particular little bit of code to go fast or is it not important? It doesn't make any sense to optimize something that's only called 100 times a month. It makes a lot of sense to optimize something that's called a million times a day. And a lot of us have applications that have that full range of processes going on. The other question is, if you have something that's called a million times a day, do you spend time optimizing it or do you figure out a better algorithm? And there's lots and lots of ways to improve the algorithm that have a much, much bigger impact than optimizations on the existing algorithm might have. Not in all cases. Sometimes if the algorithm that's been chosen is already the fastest, and so then you do want to optimize it. But a lot of times, the algorithm that was chosen was not the fastest. It was often chosen based on a set of criteria that might not be the best set of criteria. And that's an area where you can actually have a conversation. The other thing is, if you're looking at a specific function or something, you're thinking, should we optimize this function or should we improve the algorithm? You always want to be opening up your, your assessment to say, is there something else that needs to be optimized more than this thing? Right? I may be working on a new feature and I may say, oh, I want this feature to perform well. And that, that'll take me an extra week of development to do that. But you may then want to think, well, is there some other feature that already exists that maybe needs performance tuning that's more important than this feature we just built? For example, how much do you know how much your new feature is going to be used? Is it going to be used a lot when it first is released? It may, might not be. In which case, maybe something that's already out there that already is performing badly really requires your attention instead of the new feature. Another really important question is what should we optimize in the sense of making sure that you understand what part of the code or what part of the component is actually causing the performance problem. Because it's very easy to go into certain parts of the code and say, oh, look, I can see a little optimization to do there, but it might not be the part of the code that's actually causing the performance problem. And so this is the thing that probably analyzing code performance problems is certainly way outside the scope of what a product manager should be focused on, but sometimes you can ask questions. And this typically is going to be a more technical conversation than if you're a non-technical product manager that you might want to get into. There's one more super important optimization consideration for product managers, though, too, and that is don't optimize too soon. So, for example, let's imagine that we are building an application we expect to have at the end of next year, two years from now, we expect to have a million customers. So we have to be prepared for a million customers to hit our system, and it has to be able to perform well with a million customers. Well, today we only have 1,000 customers. Does it make sense for us to start optimizing for a million customers today? No, it doesn't. Because the way that we're going to get a million customers is probably not by having a super fast thing that 1,000 customers use. It's probably by having some neat new features that bring more and more people on board 
And at some point, we do have to start thinking about how to make it work for a million customers, but we don't want to do that now. This is called premature optimization, and we do not need to do it. We, do, we want to definitely avoid premature optimization because, as, as I said, optimization is always expensive. It's always done at the, at the cost of not doing something else. And if you don't have to do it, even if you know that down the road you might, you shouldn't do it now. You shouldn't do it prematurely. So I talked about three really important concepts, three important technical concepts that product managers do really need to know something about. One was APIs. One was this concept of big O notation and the performance of algorithms. And one is optimization and don't do it prematurely. Each of those has a Wikipedia page. I'll put links to the Wikipedia pages in the show notes, but I do want to point out that the big O notation page is very mathy. It's got a lot of really mathy stuff in it, way more than I wanted to read. But there is also a page on sorting algorithms that's much more approachable. I'll put a link to this, to that one in the show notes as well. Um, because sorting algorithms are sort of a, a, a good place to sort of learn about the different, different performance of algorithms because there's so many different sorting algorithms that are known. In terms of APIs, there's a really great talk by a guy named Joshua Block about designing APIs. It's very clear and not too technical. It was a Google tech talk, but it wasn't too technical. And it gave a lot of good ideas about how you should think about APIs. So it was more of a big picture kind of talk. And there's a really good article by Steve Yegi about Amazon's transition to service-oriented architecture. Uh, he's a fantastic writer. He doesn't write much anymore that I know of. But he wrote several really great long articles, and this is one of the best. Um, but I'll put a link to this in the show notes as well about their transition to this service-oriented architecture. Really good stuff. So if you like this episode, uh, please click the like button in your podcast player or the favorite button, whatever it might be. Uh, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever service you like. It's available on all the key services. It's easy to do that from the form or from the there's – a, there's a set of buttons for subscribing on the show page at alltheresponsibility.com slash 67. Please drop me a line if you have a comment or thoughts on this topic or if you want me to explain other technical concepts in my inimitable way. You can check out my previous episode on this topic of how to be a product manager even if you're not technical. That's episode number 302, alltheresponsibility.com slash 302. Again, I'll put a link in the show notes for that. And until the next episode, this is Nels Davis. Bye-bye.